Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. Part 2 of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood It was in the middle of the third verse that Simpson noticed something unusual. Something that brought his thoughts back with a rush from faraway scenes. A curious change had come into the man's voice. Even before he knew what it was, uneasiness caught him. And looking up quickly, he saw that Defago, though still singing, was peering about him into the bushes, as though he heard or saw something. His voice grew fainter, dropped to a hush, then ceased altogether. The same instance, with the movement amazingly alert, he started to his feet and stood upright, sniffing the air like a dog scenting a game. He drew the air into his nostrils in short, sharp breaths, turning quickly as he did so in all directions, and finally pointing down the lake shore eastwards. And it was a performance unpleasantly suggestive and at the same time singularly dramatic. Simpson's heart fluttered disagreeably as he watched it. Lord, man, how you made me jump! He exclaimed on his feet besides him the same instant and peering over his shoulder into the sea of darkness. What's up? Are you frightened? Even before the question was out of his mouth, he knew it was foolish, for any man with a pair of eyes in his head could see that the Canadian had turned white down to his very gills. Not even sunburned and a glare of the fire could hide that. The student felt himself trembling a little, weakish in the knees. What's up? He repeated quickly. Do you smell moose or anything queer? Anything wrong? He lowered his voice instinctively. The forest pressed around them with its encircling wall. The nearer tree stems gleamed with bronze in the firelight. Beyond that, blackness, and so far as he could tell, a silence of death. Just behind them, a passing puff of wind lifted a single leaf, looked at it, then laid it softly down again without disturbing the rest of the covery. It seemed as if a million invisible causes had combined just to produce that single visible effect. Other life pulsed about them and was gone. Defago turned abruptly. The livid hue of his face had turned to a dirty gray. I never said I heard or smelt nothing, he said slowly and empathetically, in an oddly altered voice that conveyed somehow a touch of defiance. I was only taking a look around, so to speak. It's always a mistake to be too previous with your questions. Then he added suddenly with obvious effort in his more natural voice, Have you got the matches, Boss Simpson? And proceeded to light the pipe he had half filled just before he began to sing. Without speaking another word, they sat down again by the fire, Defago changing his side so that he could face the direction that the wind came, for even a tender foot could tell that. Defago changed his position in order to hear and smell all there was to be heard and smelt. And since now he faced the lake with his back to the trees, it was evidently nothing in the forest that had sent so strange and sudden a warning to his marvelously trained nerves. Guess now I don't feel like singing any, he explained presently on his own accord. That song, Kinder, brings back memories that's troublesome to me. I never ought to have begun it. It sets me on the imagining things, see? Clearly the man was still fighting with some profoundly moving emotion. He wished to excuse himself in the eyes of the other, but the explanation in what it was, only a part of the truth, was a lie. And he knew perfectly well that Simpson was not deceived by it. 
for nothing could explain away the livid terror that had dropped over his face while he stood there, sniffing the air. And nothing, no amount of blazing fire or chatting on ordinary subjects could make that camp exactly as it had been before. The shadow of an unknown horror, naked if unguessed, that had flashed for an instant in the face gestures of the guide and also communicated itself vaguely and therefore more potently to his companion. The guide's visible efforts to disassemble the truth only made things worse. Moreover, to add to the young man's easiness was the difficulty, nay, the impossibility he felt of asking questions and also his complete ignorance as to the cause. Indians, wild animals, forest fires, all these he knew were wholly out of the question. His imagination searched vigorously, but in vain. Yet, somehow or other, after another long spell of smoking, talking, and roasting themselves before the great fire, the shadow that had so suddenly invaded their peaceful camp began to shift. Perhaps Defago's efforts, or the return of his quite normal attitude, accomplished this. Perhaps Simpson himself had exaggerated the affair out of all proportion to the truth. Or possibly the vigorous air of the wilderness brought its own power of healing. Whatever the cause, the feeling of immediate horror seemed to have passed away as mysteriously as it had come, for nothing occurred to feed it. Simpson began to feel he had permitted himself the unreasoning terror of a child. He put it down partly to a certain subconscious excitement that his wild and immense scenery generated in his blood, partially to the spell of solitude and partially to fatigue. The parlor in the guide's face was, of course, uncommonly hard to explain yet it might have been due in some way to an effect of firelight or his own imagination. He gave it the benefit of the doubt. He was scotch. When a somewhat unordinary emotion has disappeared, the mind always finds a dozen ways of explaining away its cause. Simpson lit a pipe and tried to laugh to himself on getting home to Scotland. It would make quite a good story. He did not realize that this laughter was a sign that terror still lurked in the recesses of his soul that in fact it was merely one of the conventional signs by which a man seriously alarmed tries to persuade himself that he is not so. Defago, however, heard that low laughter and looked up with surprise on his face. The two men stood side by side, kicking the embers about before going to bed. It was ten o'clock, a late hour for hunters. What's tickling ya? He asked in his ordinary tone, yet gravelly. I, I was thinking of our little toy woods at home, just at the moment stammered simpson coming back to what really dominated his mind and startled by the question comparing them to to all of this and he swept his arm around to indicate the bush a pause followed in which neither of them said anything all the same i wouldn't laugh about it if i was you defago added looking over the simpson's shoulders into the shadows there's places in there nobody won't ever see into nobody knows what lives in there either too big too far off the suggestion in the guide's manner was immense and horrible. Defago nodded. The expression on his face was dark. He, too, felt uneasy. The younger man understood that in a hinterland of this size, there might be depths of the woods that would never in this life or the world be known or trodden. The thought was not exactly the sort he welcomed. In a loud voice, cheerfully, he suggested that it was time for bed, but the guide lingered, tinkering with the fire, arranging the stones needlessly, and doing a dozen things that did not really need doing. Evidently, there was something he wanted to say, yet found it difficult to get at. Say, you, Boss Simpson. He began suddenly as the last shower of sparks went up into the air. You don't s- mm, You don't smell nothing, do you? 
Nothing particular, I mean. The commonplace question Simpson realized veiled a dreadfully serious thought in the mind. A shiver ran down his back. Nothing but burning wood, he replied. Firmly kicking again at the embers, the sound of his own foot made him start. And all the evening you ain't smelt nothing? Persisted the guide, peering at him through the gloom. Nothing extraordinary and different to anything else you ever smelt before? No, no man, nothing at all. He replied aggressively, half angrily. Defago's face cleared. That's good, he exclaimed with evident relief. That's good to hear. Have you? asked Simpson sharply, and the same instant regretted the question. The Canadian came closer in the darkness. He shook his head. I guess not, he said, though without overwhelming conviction. It must have been just that song of mine that did it. it it's, it's the song that they sing in lumber camps and godforsaken places like that when they're scared. The Wendigo's somewhere around, doing a bit of swift traveling. And what's the Wendigo, pray? Simpson asked quickly, irritated, because again, he could not prevent the sudden shiver of the nerves. He knew that he was close upon the man's terror and the cause of it, yet a rushing passionate curiosity overcame his better judgment and his fear. Defago turned swiftly and looked at him as though he were suddenly about to shriek. His eyes shone about his mouth was wide open, yet all he said, or whispered rather, for his voice sank very low, was, It's nothing. Nothing but those lousy fellers believe when they're been hit in the bottle too long, a sort of great animal that lives up yonder. He jerked his head northwards quick as lightning in its tracks and bigger than anything else in the bush and ain't supposed to be very good to look at that's all a backwoods superstition began simpson more hesitantly toward the tent in order to shake off the hand of the guide that clutched his arm come on hurry up for god's sakes and get the lantern going it's time we were in bed and asleep if we're going to be up with the sun tomorrow the guide was close on the heels i'm coming he answered out of the darkness, I am coming, and after a slight delay, he appeared with the lantern and hung it from a nail in front of the pole of the tent. The shadows of a hundred trees shifted their places quickly as he did so, and when he stumbled over the rope and diving swiftly inside, the whole tent trembled as though a gust of wind struck it. The two men lay down without undressing upon their beds of the soft boughs and boughs, cunningly arranged. Inside, all was warm and cozy but outside the world of crowding trees pressed close about them, marshalling their million shadows and smothering the little tent that stood there like a wee white shell facing the ocean of tremendous forest. Between the two lonely figures within, however, there pressed another shadow that was not a shadow from the night. It was the shadow cast by the strange fear never wholly exercised, and that had leaped suddenly upon Defago in the middle of his singing, and Simpson as he lay there, watching the darkness through the open flap of the tent, ready to plunge into the fragrant abyss of sleep, knew first that unique and profound stillness a primeval forest when no wind stirs, and when the night has weight and substance that enters into the soul to bind a veil about it, then sleep took him. Chapter 3 Thus it seemed to him at least, yet it was true, that the lap of the water, just beyond the tent of the door, will beat time with his lessening pulses, when he realized that he was lying with his eyes open and that another sound had recently induced itself with cunning softness between the splashes and murmur of the little waves. And long before he understood what this sound was, it had stirred in him the centers of pity and alarm. 
He listened intently, though at first in vain, for the running blood beat all its drums too noisily in his ears. Did it come, he wondered, from the lake or from the woods? Then suddenly, with a rush and a flutter of heart, he knew that it was close beside him in the tent, and when he turned over for a better hearing, it focused itself unmistakably. Not two feet away, it was a sound of weeping. Defago, upon his bed of branches, was sobbing in the darkness as though his heart would break, the blankets evidently stuffed against his mouth to stifle it, and his first feeling before he could think or reflect was the rush of searching tenderness. This intimate human sound heard amid the desolation about them woke pity. It was so inconjurous, so pitiful, inconjurous and so vain. Tears in this vast and cruel wilderness of what avail? He thought of a little child crying in mid-Atlantic. Then, of course, with fuller realization and the memory of what had gone before, came the descent of the terror upon him and his blood ran cold. Defago? He whispered quietly. What's the matter? He tried to make his voice very gentle. Are you in pain? Unhappy? There was no reply, but the sound ceased abruptly. He stretched his hand out and touched him. The body did not stir. Are you awake? For it occurred to him that the man was crying in his sleep. Are you cold? He noticed that his feet, which were uncovered, projected beyond the mouth of the tent. He spread an extra fold of his own blanket over them. The guide had slipped down in his bed and the branches seemed to have been dragged with him. He was afraid to pull the body back again for the fear of waking him. One or two tentative questions he ventured softly, but though he waited for several minutes, there came no reply, nor any sign of movement. Presently he heard his regular and quiet breathing, and putting his hand again gently on the breast, felt the steady rise and fall beneath. Let me know if anything's wrong, he whispered, or if I can do anything, wake me at once if you feel queer. He hardly knew what to say. He lay down again, thinking and wondering what it all meant. Defago, of course, had been crying in his sleep. Some dream of other had afflicted him, yet never in his life when he forgot that pitiful sound of sobbing and the feeling that the whole awful wilderness of the woods listened. His own mind busied itself for a long time with the recent events, of which this took its mystery place as one. And though his reason successfully argued away all unwelcome suggestions, a sensation of uneasiness remained, resisting ejection, very deep-seated, peculiar beyond ordinary. Chapter 4 But sleep in the long run proves greater than all emotions. His thoughts soon wandered again. He lay there, warm as toast, exceedingly weary, the night soothed and comforted, blunting the edges of memory and alarm. Half an hour later, he was oblivious to everything in the outer world about him. Yet sleep in this case was his great enemy, concealing all approaches, smothering the warning of his nerves. As sometimes in a nightmare event crowd upon each other's heels with the conviction of dreadfulest reality, yet some inconsistent detail accuses the whole display of incompleteness and disguise, so the events that now followed though they actually happened, persuaded the mind somehow that the detail which could explain them had been overlooked in confusion, and that therefore there were but partly true the rest delusion at the back of the sleeper's mind, something remains awake, ready to let slip the judgment. All of this is not quite real. When you wake up, you'll understand. And thus in a way, it was with Simpson the events not wholly inexplicable 
or incredible in themselves, yet remain for the man who saw and heard from sequence of separate facts of Cold War, because the little piece that might have made the puzzle clear lay concealed or overlooked. So far as he can recall, it was a violent movement running downwards through the tent towards the door. The first woke him and made him aware that his companion was sitting bolt upright beside him, quivering. Hours must have passed, for it was the pale gleam of the dawn that revealed his outline against the canvas. This time the man was not crying, he was quaking like a leaf, the trembling he felt plainly through the blankets down the entire length of his own body. Defago had huddled down against him for protection. Shrinking away from something that apparently concealed itself near the door flaps of the little tent, Simpson threw upon called out in a loud voice some question or other in the first bewilderment of waking he does not remember exactly what, and the man made no reply. The atmosphere and feeling of true nightmare lay horribly about him, making movement and speech both difficult. At first, indeed, he was not sure where he was, whether in one of the earlier camps or at home in his bed at Aberdeen. The sense of confusion was very troubling. The next, almost simultaneous with his waking, it seemed the profound stillness of the dawn outside was shattered by most uncommon sound. It came without warning, an audible approach, and it was unspeakably dreadful. It was a voice, Simpson declares possibly a human voice, hoarse yet plaintive, a soft roaring voice, close outside the tent, overheard rather upon the ground of immense volume while in some way most penetratingly and seductively sweet it rang out too in three separate and distinct notes of cries and bore in some odd fashion of resemblance far-fetched yet recognizable to the name of the guide defago the student admits he is unable to describe it quite intelligently for it was like any other sound he had ever heard in his life and combined a blending of such contrary qualities a sort of windy crying voice he calls it as of something lonely and untamed, wild and abominable power. And even before it ceased, dropping back into the great gulfs of silence, the guide beside him had sprung to his feet with an answering, though unintelligible, cry. He blundered against the tent pole with violence, shaking the whole structure, spreading his arms out frantically for more room, and kicking his legs free of the clinging blankets. For a second, perhaps two, he stood upright by the door, his dark outline against the pallor of the dawn, then, with a furious rushing speed, before his companion could move a hand to stop him, he shot with a plunge through the flaps of canvas, and was gone. And as he went, so astonishing fast, the voice could actually be heard dying in the distance. He called aloud in tones of anguish and terror that at the same time held something strangely, like frenzied execution of delight. Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire! Oh, oh, this height, the fiery speed. And then the distance quickly buried it. The deep silence of very early morning descended upon the forest as before. It had all come about with such rapidity that, for evidence of the empty bed beside him, Simpson could almost have believed it to have been a memory of a nightmare cried over from sleep. He still felt the warm pressure of that vanished body against his side. There lay the twisted blankets in a heap, the very tent that trembled. With the impetuous departure, the strange words rang in his ears as though he still heard them in the distance, wild language of a sudden stricken mind. Moreover, it was not only the senses of sight and hearing that reported uncommon things to his brain, for even while the man cried and ran, he had become aware that a strange perfume, yet faint and pungent, pervaded the interior of the tent, and it was at this point, it seems, 
brought to himself by the consciousness that his nostrils were taking this distressing odor down into his throat that he found his courage, sprang quickly to his feet, and went out. The gray light of dawn that dropped cold and glimmering between the trees revealed the scene tolerably well. There stood the tent behind him, soaked with dew, the dark ashes of the fire still warm, the lake white beneath a coating of mist, the islands rising darkly out of it like objects packed in wool, and patches of snow beyond among the clearer spaces of the bush, everything cold, still, waiting for the sun, but nowhere a sign of the vanished guide, still, doubtless flying at frantic speed through the frozen woods. There was not even the sound of disappearing footsteps, nor the echoes of the dying light. He had gone, utterly. There was nothing, nothing but the sense his recent presence so strongly left behind the camp, and this penetrating, all-pervading odor. And even this was now rapidly disappearing in its turn in spite of his exceeding mental perturbation. Simpson struggled hard to detect its nature and define it, but the ascertaining of an elusive scent not recognized subconsciously and at once it is very subtle operation of the mind, and he failed. It is gone before he could properly seize or name it. Approximate description even seems to have been difficult, for it was unlike any smell he knew acrid, rather, not unlike odor of a lion he thinks yet softer and not wholly unpleasing, with something almost sweet in it that reminds him of the scent of decaying garden leaves, earth, and the myriad. Nameless perfume that makes up the odor of a big forest, yet the odor of lions, is the phase with which he usually sums it all up. Then it was wholly gone, and he found himself standing by the ashes of the fire in a state of amazement and stupid terror that left him the hopeless prey of anything that chose to happen. Had a muskrat poked its pointed muzzle over a rock, or a squirrel scuttled in that instant down the bark of a tree, he would most likely have collapsed without more ado and fainted, for he felt the whole affair the touch somewhere of a great outer horror, and his scattered powers had not as yet had time to collect themselves into definite attitude of fighting self-control. Nothing did happen, however. A great kiss of wind ran softly through the awakening forest, and a few maple leaves here and there rustled trembling to the earth. The sky seemed to grow suddenly, much lighter. Simpson felt the cool air upon his cheek and uncovered head, realized that he was shivering with the cold and making a great effort, realized that he was alone in the bush, and that he was called upon to take immediate steps to find and secure his vanished companion. Make an effort accordingly he did, though an ill-calculated and futile one, with that wilderness of trees about him, the sheet of the water cutting him off behind, and the horror of that wild cry in his blood, he did what any other inexperienced man would have done in similar bewilderment. He ran about without any sense of direction, like a frantic child, and called loudly without ceasing the name of the guide, Defago! 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 he yelled. He yelled, and the trees gave him the back the name as often as he shouted, only a little softened. Defago! Defago! Father. He followed the trail that lay a short distance across the patches of snow, then lost it again where the trees grew too thickly for snow to lie. He shouted till he was hoarse, until the sound of his own voice and all that unanswering and listening word and all he shouted till he was hoarse until the sound of his own voice and all that unanswering and listening world began to frighten him. His confusion increased in direct ratio into the violence of his efforts. His distress became formidably acute, till at length his exhortations defeated their own object, and from sheer exhaustion he headed back to the camp again. 
It remains a wonder that he ever found his way. It was with great difficulty, and only after numberless false clues that he at least saw the white tent between the trees and so reached safety. Exhaustion then applied its own remedy, and he grew calmer. He made the fire and breakfast, hot coffee and bacon, put a little sense of judgment into him again, and he realized that he had been behaving like a boy. He now had another and more successful attempt to face the situation collectively, and a nature natural plucky coming to his assistant he decided that he must first make as through a search as possible failing success in which he must find his way into the home camp at best he could and bring help and this is what he did taking food matches and rifle with him and a small axe to blaze the trees against his return journey he set forth it was eight o'clock when he started the sun shining over the tops of the trees and the sky without clouds Pinned to a stake by the fire, he left a note in case Defago returned while he was away. This time, according to a careful plan, he took a new direction, intending to make a wide sweep that must sooner or later cut into indictations of the guide's trail, and before he had gone a quarter of a mile, he came across the tracks of a large animal in the snow, and besides it, the light and smaller tracks of what were beyond questioned human feet, the feet of Defago. The relief he at once experienced was natural, though brief, for at first sight he saw in these tracks a simple explanation of the whole matter. These big marks had surely been left by a bull moose. That, wind against it, and blundered upon the camp and uttered its singular cry of warning and alarm, the moment it mistaken was apparent. Defago, in whom the hunting instinct was developed to the point of uncanny perfection, had scented the brute coming down to wind hours before. His excitements and disappearance were due, of course, to, to his. Then the impossible explanation at which he grasped had faded, as common sense showed him mercilessly that none of this was true. No guide, much less a guide like Defago, could have acted in such an irrational way, going off even without his rifle. The whole affair demanded a far more complicated plan when he remembered the details of all. The cry of terror, the amazing language, the gray face of horror when his nostrils first caught the new odor, that muffled sobbing in the darkness, and for this too, now come back to him dimly, the man's original aversion for this particular bit of county. Besides now that he examined them closer, these were not the tracks of a bull moose at all. Hank had explained to him that the outline of a bull moose's hoofs, of a cow's or calf's too, for that matter, he had drawn them clearly on a strip of birch bark, and these were wholly different. They were big, round, ample, and with no pointed outline as of a sharp hoof. He wondered for a moment whether the bear tracks were like this. There were no other animal he could think of. There was no other animal he could think of, for caribou did not come so far south at this season, and even if they did, would leave hoof marks. They were ominous signs, these mysterious writings left in the snow by the unknown creature that had lured a human being away from safety, and when he coupled them in his imagination with that haunting sound that broke the silence, with that haunting sound that broke the stillness of the dawn, a momentary dizziness took his mind, distressing him again beyond belief. He felt the threatening aspect of it all and stood down to examine the marks more closely. He caught a faint whiff of that sweet yet pungent odor that made him instantly straighten up again, fighting a sensation almost of nausea. Then his memory played him another evil trick. He suddenly, 
Then his memory played him another evil trick. He suddenly recalled those uncovered feet projecting beyond the edge of the tent and the body's appearance of having been dragged towards the opening. The man's shrinking from something by the door when he woke later. The details now beat against his trembling mind with concerted attack. They seemed to gather in those deep spaces of the silent forest about him, where the host of trees stood waiting, listening, watching, to see what he would do. The woods were closing around him. With the persistence of the true pluck, however, Simpson went forward, following the tracks best he could, smothering these ugly emotions that sought to waken his will. Smothering these ugly emotions that sought to weaken his will. He blazed innumerable trees as he went, even fearful of being unable to find the way back and calling aloud at intervals of a few seconds the name of the guide. The dull tapping of the axe upon the massive trunks and the unnatural accents of his own voice became at length sounds that he even dreaded to make, dreaded to hear, for they drew attention without ceasing to his presence and the exact whereabouts, and if it were really the case that something was hunting himself down in the same way that he was hunting down another, with strong effort he crushed the thought, out the instant it rose, it was the beginning, he realized, of a bewilderment utterly diabolical in kind that would speedily destroy him. Although the snow was not continuous, lying merely in shallow flurries over the more open spaces, he found no difficulty in following the tracks for the first few miles. They went straight as a ruled line. Wherever the trees permitted, the stride soon began to increase in length, till it finally assumed proportions that seemed absolutely impossible for any ordinary animal to have made. Like huge flying leaps they became, one of these he measured and thought he knew that stretch of 18 feet must be somehow wrong. He was at a complete loss to understand why he found no signs on the snow between the extreme points. But what perplexed him even more, making him feel his vision had gone utterly weary, was the Defago's stride increased in the same manner, and finally covered the same incredible distances. It looked as if the great beast had lifted him with him and carried him across these astonishing intervals. Simpson, who was much longer in the limb, found that he could not compass even half the stretch by taking a running jump. And the sight of these huge tracks, running side by side, silent evidence of the dreadful journey in which terror or madness had urged to impossible results, was profoundly moving it. It shocked him in the secret depths of his soul. It was the most horrible thing his eyes had ever looked upon. He began to follow them mechanically, absent-mindedly almost, even peering over his shoulder to see if he too were being followed by something with a gigantic tread. And soon it came about that he no longer quite realized what it was they signified, these impressions left upon the snow by something nameless and untamed, always accompanied by the footsteps of the little French-Canadian, his guide, his comrade, the man who had shared his tent with him a few hours before, chatting, laughing, and even singing by his side. Alright everyone, we're finally at our exit 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.